Hello. Will you please open scripture with me to Matthew chapter 5? Our text for today is verses 38 through 42. Allow me to read it to you as you follow along in the scriptures. These are the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The human race is a vengeful race. Have been since sin entered the picture. You might remember that the firstborn son to human parents, Cain, murdered his brother Abel for no offense at all. And then we see in the third great-grandson of Cain, Lamech, the same vengeance of Cain. Lamech had an encounter with a guy one day, and uh, he was offended. He got, he got hit, and then he tells his two wives what he did about it. It says in Genesis 4, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Well, from the beginning of sin, we've been a vengeful race. Everyone gets angry. We saw that several weeks ago when we looked at what Christ teaches about anger here in the Sermon on the Mount. And what often happens when people get angry with someone in response to a wrong or an offense, whether it's real or simply perceived, how's the saying go? I don't get angry. I get even. (laughs) Exactly. There's nothing more natural than lashing out at somebody who you think has done you wrong. And if you don't believe me, just watch kids at play for any length of time. No one needs to teach us to do that. It's just part of our sinful nature. It's in our spiritual DNA, if you will. As we continue to move through the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves at another point where Jesus is confronting popular false teaching from the scribes and Pharisees. He is addressing for his disciples something from God's word that had been misunderstood and taught wrongly to them. So they, if left to the scribal interpretation, would have misunderstood how they should live as God's people. And today we're looking at how Jesus is confronting popular false teaching about justice. The scribes and Pharisees were abusing God's word to make it say something about justice that it didn't say at all. Does that sound familiar? We hear a lot about justice these days. A lot of scripture gets thrown around. Not all of it accurate. I mean, the scriptures are accurate. If the interpretation isn't always, often it isn't. And so this morning, we're going to look at true justice and how it's different than vengeance. Then we're going to see how Jesus teaches us as his regenerate, made new in the gospel people to respond to wrongdoing and inconvenience done toward us. And as we see that, we're going to see just how deeply we have to depend upon his grace if we're going to respond that way at all, because we don't have it in us. And so let's look at justice for a moment and see how it's a very different thing than personal vengeance. 
Looking around today, you might not know that justice and vengeance are not the same thing. We're told that justice is often a matter of doing to someone to rectify what they have done to you. Some people would call getting back at them. Anytime someone has an advantage over someone else, we're told that somewhere along the line, some kind of injustice must have taken place, which is why social justice is often referred to as distributive justice, or more accurately, redistributive justice. Take from someone who's better off and give their stuff to people who don't have as much, even if the person over here worked his tail off to get where he is, and this person over here hasn't done anything. We're, we're told that that's justice. Friends, that's not justice. That's socialism. And wherever it's ever happened, it's always ensured that true justice doesn't take place, but that evil always follows. True justice is something else entirely. In the Bible, justice is synonymous with righteousness. The same terms are used where we make a distinction in English between righteousness and justice. The Bible doesn't make any kind of distinction like that. So I want you to, to, when you read your Bibles and you see justice and righteousness, put an equal sign between the two of them. So God is just. He always does what is right toward every person. His people are to do the same, and that's personal justice. Personal justice is treating all people fairly and equally as image bearers, giving no favor to somebody who's better off, no disadvantage to someone who's less better off, or, or vice versa. We treat all people as valuable, precious image bearers of God. That's personal justice. Civil justice, civil justice is a society or a government being fair and impartial as it seeks to do good or to protect the good, to punish evil, and to promote righteousness. And it's civil justice, particularly, that forms the backdrop to what Jesus is saying here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wanted to show his disciples what it looks like to respond in a godly way to people who are out to get you. And to do that, he needed to confront the way that civil justice had been completely warped and made into a personal vendetta by the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in verse 38, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that principle, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is what's called in Latin lex talionis, which simply means the law of retaliation. And it was a basic principle of civil justice that we see multiple times in the law of Moses. In fact, if you go back a couple hundred years past Moses, the Babylonians had it in their law as well in the 18th century. But the Babylonians didn't come up with it. Just because that's the earliest record of it doesn't mean that they came up with it. This was God's idea. The Babylonians just discovered it by God's common grace. And it's definitely been made most well-known for us in the pages of the Old Testament. Listen to what God expects of his people Israel in a few particular situations. So first, take, a, take an instance where two men are fighting with each other and there's a pregnant woman nearby. Okay, what could go wrong? Well, let's see. When men strive together, it says in Exodus 21, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If harm came to an innocent woman or her child, born or unborn, then justice demanded that restitution be made in proportion 
to the harm. And this served as a deterrent to men from not brawling around pregnant women too carelessly, (laughs) on the one hand, and also as a protection for somebody who was in the wrong from having disproportionate justice exacted on him. Okay, so it restrained evil in society, and it also ensured proportional justice. And incidentally, in this particular passage, pertinent to us today in our society, we see that God intends the unborn at every stage of life to have full legal protection under the law. There's no distinction between the mother or the unborn child in the value of life. And another passage that Jesus is referring to when he talks about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is Leviticus 24. In this scenario, it says, If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So in a court of law in Israel, if someone wrongfully injured someone else, they were liable to the same injury. I don't know about you, but that would make me think twice before I did something rash in my anger. You get angry with someone, break their arm, hold out yours, count to three, here we go. That's a pretty good deterrent. (laughs) It was also a safeguard so that someone didn't get whipped to within an inch of their life for a much lesser injury that they inflicted. So it served two functions. This is wisdom. Well, the principle of lex talionis also served as a protection around the ninth commandment, which says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In Deuteronomy 19, we're told if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. You shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is brilliant. In this kind of a society, people would think twice before trying to get an innocent person in trouble with the law. How many times do second and third born children look at what the first born child goes through when they just won't get a clue and obey dad and mom and they say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to do that. (laughs) And then they're a little more obedient. You know, they see by example and it deters evil. Well, in all of these cases that we're looking at, notice a couple of things. This is really important. The first thing we need to see is that this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle of justice, this is God's idea. This is God's perfect law for his people, Israel. This isn't something that they just came up with and we think, oh, it was kind of harsh. No, this, this reflects the perfect character of God. And so in society, the idea of a punishment fitting the crime is simply to say what God says and to do as wisdom requires. And it is to our shame and our harm that we have messed up justice in our society at precisely this point. We are rapidly abolishing the death penalty for first-degree murder. We're ignoring proportionality in addressing crime, and there are some cities that are just deciding not to punish certain crimes at all. We have seen a, a huge skyrocket in violent crime in our nation, and people feel less safe than they did before. Why? We've abandoned wisdom. We have said, thank you, God, for the idea, but we're gonna go our own way, and every time we'll pay the price. This is God's idea. The second thing is that every single instance of the law of retribution is always in the context of civil justice. It's always civil justice, never personal vengeance. 
there's not one single instance of all of God's law where personal vengeance is sanctioned. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we take vengeance, it is sin. When God does vengeance, it is justice. But when we take God's role into our own hands, we will always do it corruptly. And this gets us to the heart of what Jesus is saying here in quoting this principle in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, of course they'd heard it said. It was a very well-known part of God's perfect word. And what Jesus is doing here at this point in the Sermon on the Mount is he is not contradicting that. He is not setting aside God's word. He can't do that. Why? What did Jesus say he came to do? He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not set it aside, not abolish it. He came to fulfill it. So whatever he's doing, he's not contradicting what God had said. Because again, proportional justice is his idea. No, what Jesus is taking aim at is the way that the scribes and the Pharisees had taken this idea of civil justice and they had moved it through some, you know, tricky maneuvering into the realm of personal vengeance. They looked at this principle in God's word and they taught the people, if someone does something against you, you can do the same back. And what's even worse is through corrupting God's word that way, the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching that that kind of a thing actually is righteousness. That's not righteousness. It was a miscarriage of justice that was taking place all the time. But Jesus says that his people's righteousness must exceed this kind of false righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees were selling. Justice for wrongdoing between people is the domain of the state. Grace is the domain of the saints. And it's to people who are saints, who are made new by the gospel, sinners saved by grace, that Jesus is saying what he does here in the Sermon on the Mount. Sinful human nature is vindictive. And when confronted by people who wrong us or offend us or inconvenience us, sinners get back, they get even, or they just get downright frosty. Saints get gracious. Grace means favor, okay? So we saw there's an equal sign between the terms justice and righteousness in scripture. We need to also put an equal sign between the words grace and favor. God's grace, the amazing grace that we just sang of is God's freely given and undeserved favor towards sinners like us. And when we show grace to other people, we're showing them favor, whether or not they've deserved it or earned it or whether or not they've, uh, they don't deserve it. The poor in spirit that Jesus talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness are those who are going to abound with grace as peacemakers to others, especially when it's hard to do so. And that's tough. This is one of the more difficult passages in the Sermon on the Mount to apply because it is so against the natural grain of sinful human nature. And in these verses, verses 39 through 42, Jesus gives four examples of how this looks in the lives of his kingdom citizens as they face difficult hardship in their relationships day by day. And the first example he uh, he uses has to do with personal insult. And that's in verse 39. He says, but so in contrast to this personal vengeance that was being taught from an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth by the Pharisees, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And this may seem a little odd to us. We're not really a society that goes around people slapping each other every day, at least not in the circles I run in. 
you might have a different experience. If you do, I'd like to speak with you after. When someone strikes another person in our culture, typically it's a violent assault. And it's not the kind of scenario Jesus was talking about. In their culture, the kind of slap that Jesus talks about here was a vicious personal insult, not an attack to do harm. So he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, well, that's because most people are right-handed, and the slap that Jesus says here is, uh, usually it was a backhanded slap. And it was, it was the most egregious insult you could give a person, so severe, in fact, that this kind of an insult was punishable under law. And so a person would take their right hand, if they were right-handed, bring it across their chest, and give a sharp slap to the right side of the other person's cheek. And then things would tend to go downhill from there. And Jesus' point here is that Christians should not retaliate for personal insult, even serious and deep personal insult. Okay? Christians should not respond in kind. Rather, they should graciously hold their peace. In the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, Jesus is going to say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So Jesus was correcting falsehood um, here that, that, that the scribes and Pharisees were saying, showing that people who are saved by him should imitate him who did not revile in return, but loved those who treated him unjustly to the point of death on a cross. And this is what he did to secure our salvation. And so that we who are made new through that salvation can go and do likewise. Now there's a couple ways that this verse gets misunderstood popularly. One way that people misunderstand this is to say that Jesus is saying that Christians can't correct somebody who's slanderously lying about them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that Christians can never answer a slanderous accusation or correct a falsehood. We see the Apostle Paul himself um, correcting slander against him multiple times in Acts and especially with the Corinthian church. But the difference is he's not doing it because of personal insult that he's offended by. He's doing it because he realizes that if slanderous lies about him proliferate from false teachers, then his teaching about the gospel is at stake. And if, if, if slander and blatant lies are circulated about a believer, it can undermine that believer's credible witness for Christ. And so the glory of God is always in view when we correct slanderous lies about us. Another way that this is completely misunderstood is when some well-meaning believers say that Jesus forbids self-defense from violent attack or that he, def he forbids the defense of others. Some people have taken this verse and then extrapolated from there to say that, that armies and police forces are evil as well, that no Christian has any business being in the army. This is not what Jesus had in mind here. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about defending yourself from a violent attacker. He's talking about defending yourself against an insult by retaliating. The motives are entirely different. The situation is entirely different. In fact, this is such a common misunderstanding. I'd like to take a sidebar just for a moment and talk about it. God intends men to protect their wives and children and to defend the weak and innocent from harm. And sometimes in a sinful world full of violence, that means answering violent force with controlled violence enough to control that harm doesn't take place beyond what's already happened. Because if you don't answer somebody who is being violent, oftentimes more violence happens. When Grudem points out that before his death, Jesus told his disciples to sell their cloak and buy a sword. And that was a 
personal self-defense weapon. It's not the kind of sword that Queen Elizabeth used to cut the cake a couple months ago. Okay, this was a personal self-defense weapon because oftentimes traveling through Israel in the highways and byways, you'd have bandits and murderers and thieves lurking in the shadows. And so when Jesus told them to do this, he was implying that it was okay for them to defend themselves against thieves. But then in the very next breath, almost, he's going to tell Peter, don't use the sword to bring in the kingdom. You're getting in the way of what I'm doing here and atoning for your sins. The idea is that spiritual warfare is solely the realm of spiritual weapons, prayer, love, the word of God. Physical assault is a different situation. Now, some people might object that only the government bears the sword for defense and protection, like we read earlier from Romans 13. But consider that in our nation, both federal and state law allows citizens to defend themselves from imminent harm against them or innocent people around them. This is a lawful use of force, not contrary to what Jesus is saying. And even our own nation began as an act of self-defense against violent tyranny from a government that had abandoned its God-appointed function of protecting its people from evil. Local magistrates in the colonies read Romans 13 and understood that God intended for them to protect the people under their charge from harm. And so they did so in the War of Independence. And actually, countless Presbyterian Calvinist pastors led their congregations by example in taking up their muskets after preaching and going out to defend their flocks. This was so common, in fact, that the British sometimes referred to the War for Independence as the Presbyterian Revolt. And I heard one person, one pastor I like, uh, tweet out this uh, last month that if you're grateful for independence, go hug a Calvinist. (laughs) You see, the protection of innocent life is part of what's implied in the sixth commandment, not to murder. And so the commandments have a negative and a positive. The negative, the one that like don't do this, is don't murder. The positive is protect life. John Calvin says, to sum it up then, All violence, injury, and any harmful thing at all that may injure our neighbor's body are forbidden to us. We are accordingly commanded if we find anything of use to to us in saving our neighbor's lives, faithfully to employ it. If there's anything that makes for their peace, to see to it. If anything harmful, to ward it off. If there's any danger, to lend a helping hand. That is what it means to be pro-life. So Jesus is not forbidding telling the truth when you're slandered or defending yourself or others from violent attack. Jesus' point, and we need to get this clearly because those other scenarios, not the slander so much, but the violent attack, that is so rare that most people will never ever face it in their lives. But this thing that Jesus is talking about is so common that unless we meditate on this, we're gonna miss the point of what he's saying. And that is that when you're insulted, even severely, do not retaliate an insult in return. Rather, exude grace. Exude grace. Because as we saw from Romans 12, vengeance belongs to God, not to us. We're called to love our insulter and let God deal with the details. I promise you, he's more than capable. Well, another example that Jesus gives to show us that we should abound in grace as his people is in a situation of personal litigation in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So here's a situation of someone taking you to court for damages. Presumably, they have a reason. They've actually been wronged by you, and they're taking you to court rightly. Otherwise, the court wouldn't be able to give him your tunic. Okay, so it's presumably a just case. 
Now, of course, we don't wear tunics and cloaks, but we do wear shirts and coats. And so the analogy goes for us. Tunics, back in their day, were the, the garment that was worn closest to the body, right on the skin, kind of like we wear our shirts. Their cloak was the outer garment. It was their protection against inclement weather. And for many Jews, it was the only thing they had to sleep in. It was the most valuable article of clothing. In fact, it was so protected that even if you owed somebody money, the court couldn't make you give your cloak up. In Exodus 22, this is what the law said. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else? shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now, most people who are taken for court, taken to court, even when it's a just lawsuit, are pretty resentful about the whole thing. It's on nobody's bucket list, let me put it that way, to get taken to court. But if you've been justified before the court of heaven through faith in Christ, you aren't allowed to let resentment set in, even in those cases. Christ is shown very beautifully when one of his people not only gives what is required by law, but goes above and beyond to make sure that there is no animosity whatsoever, to show that we as Christians are so willing to be just in our own personal dealings that we will go the extra mile, which is actually coming from the next illustration that Jesus gives. But just like turning the other cheek is sometimes misunderstood, this one also gets misunderstood as well. Jesus is not teaching that a Christian can't defend himself in court when he's innocent. Again, the Apostle Paul serves as a great example here. Time after time after time in Acts, he's brought before judges and magistrates. He even appeals to the emperor of the Roman Empire to defend his innocence. God is a God of justice. And when we allow the legal system to be degraded through deceit and lawlessness that are unanswered, this does not glorify God. God ordained government to protect the innocent, to promote good, to restrain and punish evil. And there's nothing unchristlike about defending yourself in a court when you're being falsely accused. But there is something very unchristlike about doing so in a manner that is contentious, rude, and self-seeking, or trying to squirm out of a just sentence. Okay, there's all the difference in the world. So Christians abound with grace to those who insult them and litigate against them because this displays our Savior who did the same. It displays our Savior who did the same. And in all of these things, Jesus keeps bringing us back to this principle that we heard read from Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the principle at work here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And a third example he gives to illustrate this point is that sometimes we're pushed into inconvenient personal service to someone else. In verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This too comes with a context. The Roman Empire had authority over the Jewish nation. The Jews had been held captive in Babylon, and Babylon was defeated by the Persians. The Persians were defeated by the Greeks, and the Greeks were defeated by the Romans. They had a little bit of reprieve in the middle through the time of the Maccabees. But let's just say that by the time of Jesus, the Jews were super acquainted with what it was to be an oppressed people. They were occupied by Rome. And under Roman law, a soldier could take any Jew and force him to carry his baggage up to a mile, which in that time was a thousand paces just a little less than our mile today. 
almost every single time it was going to be a serious inconvenience to the person being conscripted for that kind of service. Few people were as hated as Roman soldiers since the Jews longed to be free. So you can imagine how a Jew felt about being pressed into this kind of service. And we see exactly that kind of thing at play in the Gospels when Simon the Cyrene is taken from the crowds and forced to carry Jesus' cross. That's what's going on. And Jesus tells his followers that if they're pressed into service, they should go above and beyond. Rather than the required by law thousand steps, why not go 2,000 steps? Imagine the look on a Roman soldier's face when you take the thousand and first step and he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> Nobody does that. You, I can't force you to go any farther. And you say, no, it's okay, let's keep going. You might even have a chance along the way to tell him about the Nazarene who died and rose again. Wouldn't that be something? Or what about when your friend needs your help and it's just, it's not a good time? Uh, it's not a good time. Do you simply do the original ask or do you take the opportunity to abound with grace and show them Christ? I think for children, this is especially helpful. I don't know how many kids are in here who are school age, but consider how many kids, do you, how many of you love to do your homework? How many of you love to do your chores? There were only two kids in the first service out of many who admitted to enjoying that kind of thing. And I think that for most kids, chores is kind of like forced labor. <laughs> so is homework. Ah, how dare they? I'm reading Calvin and Hobbes to my son right now, and there's a lot of that kind of thing. Well, kids, when you're doing your schoolwork or your chores, you have a chance to show Jesus to your teachers and to your parents. And if you're homeschooled, your teacher is your parent, so you get a double win, okay? You have a chance to show what it looks like to turn forced work into joyful worship by choosing to do with joy what you have to do. That's what it means to show Jesus. And when I think about turning forced service into joyful labor for the Lord, I think of St. Patrick. He's one of my heroes from church history, one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived. When he was 16, he was kidnapped from his home in Britain and hauled off by Irish pirates. He was a shepherd for five or six years, hard labor, and somewhere along the way, Christ found him. He had a chance to escape, which he did. He got back home, and then he trained for the ministry, and he spent the rest of his life going back to the land of his captivity to share the Savior who had set him free. I've never been kidnapped, thanks be to God, but I imagine that if I were, going back to the place I was hauled off to would not be on my top list of destinations. That's exactly what Patrick did, because he loves Christ. Jesus says to us, where inconvenience or first service abounds, grace abounds all the more from those who love the Lord. And the last illustration Jesus uses to press home this point of abounding grace in the face of adversity is when someone comes to you with a genuine need. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This has to do with your personal property. This has to do with your personal property. When someone begs from you or asks to borrow from you, you're putting your stuff on the line when you give or you lend. And there's a chance even when you lend that that thing's not coming back or it's not coming back in the condition that you lent it out in. But Jesus says, this is the kind of thing that shows the love of God. I read this week that in Jesus' day, many Jews would rather die than beg. And so his disciples would have assumed that the kind of person in verse 42 who's begging is doing so because they really, really need it. And the Bible has a lot to say about generosity to the poor. 
Psalm 112, for example, in verses 5 and 9 says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So what are Christians to do when confronted with genuine need? They give. They lend. They help according to the ability that God gives to them. Why? Because when we were in our greatest need, when we didn't even know we were alienated from God, he sent his son, gave up his most precious son for our sake so that we would be redeemed. And he supplies everything we have anyway. So everything that we loan and give is simply God giving through us. Where need abounds, grace abounds. And of course, this too is another verse that sometimes gets abused and misunderstood. Jesus is not teaching that any beggar on the street can bankrupt you just by asking enough. That's not what's going on here. This is hyperbole. We have to take it in view of all the rest of the scriptures. It's not teaching that if someone asks you for money, you have to give it no matter what. It's not telling me that when I was in Bend, Oregon a couple years ago, on the, on the block where the last blockbuster in the world at that point was, that I had to give something to the man with the sign that said, lay some cheddar on this broke cracker. <laughs> I hired him for a picture. I gave him a buck and I said, can I take a picture? Because I really liked that sign. So you can ask me later, I'll show it to you. In second... Thessalonians, we're told that if someone refuses to work, he shouldn't eat. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, if a man won't provide for his relatives, especially the people of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers know that that's not cool. So what if such a man like that asks you for money? Well, the way I understand scripture, it'd be wrong to give it to him. Now, friends, the rule in all of these examples is love. A love that looks at the person in need, a love that looks at what is best for them and seeks to help them so that they are met where they need to be met. So whether you're dealing with matters of personal insult or personal litigation, personal service, personal property, or something else that Jesus just didn't illustrate by way of example here, we want to abound with grace. And so if I could kind of wrap that up and put it to you like this, it would be that if we as Christians are engines, grace is what fuels us. If we're a train, grace is the steam that makes the engine go, and wisdom and love are the two tracks that guide us. Wisdom and love, motivated by grace because of God. Now you say, well, what does it look like to to be wise in those situations? I mean, we face a lot of different situations. That's okay. James tells us if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who freely gives to all without finding fault. We know where to go for it. So let wisdom and love guide us by God's help as we seek to show grace because God showed grace to us. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we would agree with what I said earlier that this is one of the most difficult passages in the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is super hard to pull. How do you pull that kind of thing off? How do you show love to somebody who has insulted you viciously? How do you love somebody who's litigating against you? Where in the world do we turn to, to get from forced service into joyful labor? Well, we can't. It's, it's not in our nature, naturally, which is what nature means. It's not in our old nature. <laughs> but thanks be to God, there's a new nature. Thanks be to God, those in Christ have a new birth. And I think the crux of the matter is that the only way we can abound with grace is by coming to the God whose grace abounds to us. 
In other words, grace abounds from us because grace abounds to us. The great Puritan pastor Paul Bunyan titled his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And I think that title could work for any Christian's autobiography. He took his title from a passage I've alluded to a couple times this morning, Romans 5, verses 19 through 21, where it says that for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the one thing we've seen over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is that we can never live the righteous life that God requires. We cannot be the just people that Jesus envisions. We can never earn heaven or do enough good works to deliver ourselves from the hell we deserve. But thanks be to God, his perfect son became one of us and died in our place to pay the full penalty of our sins when he owed us nothing. Amazing grace abounds to all who come to Jesus Christ by faith. And God never stops pouring it out. So we actually have a pretty good supply to pour out to others. And to someone like that who's poor in spirit and comes to Christ hungry and thirsty for his righteousness, the grace that abounds to them is the grace that abounds from them. And so, returning to Romans 12, we're told to overcome evil with good. And the gospel is the only way that that happens. And it comes down to the fact that we can overcome evil with good because God overcame our evil in Christ. It always comes back to what Christ has done for us. So when someone shows you evil, you can show them good because God showed good to you when you were only evil. (laughs) So you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Christ would have us overcome evil with good because God overcame our evil in him. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, whose love abounds to us in Christ before we even knew we needed it and certainly before we wanted it. We thank and praise you for the most precious gift of your son poured out for us. We rejoice in his resurrection and the new life that he gives. We praise you for your Holy Spirit and his new birth work in our lives and the constant ministry that he gives us to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We come as needy people, unable to do what you've commanded. We ask for help. We do so with joy because we know that you delight to give that help to us. Your grace has abounded to us and continues to abound. And so we pray that by your help, we may abound in grace toward others when it's most hard. Forgive us where we fail. Help us to strive that we may grow in the holiness that pleases you and that shows people who need it most who you are. May we be a church that's known by grace. Have mercy on our nation, have mercy on our world, and may we be agents of that very mercy and grace in all the places that you send us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.